0: Please open with me to Isaiah 52 and 53. Wilson's already read um, the entire sermon text. I'll read a shorter portion of it during the sermon, but we're going to bounce around, so I would love for it to be open in front of you so that you can see it. We've come to the final servant song of Isaiah. The past three times that I've had the pleasure of being with you to open God's Word, we've considered one of these remarkable texts in the last half of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. What we find in the Servant Songs is essentially a blueprint for Jesus's entire mission. We see his character, his life, his suffering, his death, his treatment as a criminal, his bearing the full weight of our sin on his body and soul, and even his resurrection, his vindication, and his redemption of all things. In keeping with this, it's been said that the final servant song here in Isaiah 52 and 53 sounds like it was written at the foot of the cross. 700 years before, you can almost imagine Isaiah sitting there at Golgotha with the centurion, jotting down what is happening and why, the significance and the scene. It's a remarkable text, and 10,000 sermons couldn't do it justice. And honestly, if there were any passage I would be tempted to stand before you read and then sit back down again, it might be this one. But today I want us to consider the kind of story that this passage tells. What kind of story does this passage tell? Our family's been on a bit of a musical kick lately. We burned a hole in the Greatest Showman soundtrack. I think maybe a few of you have as well. We had a brief four-way into a few of the Hamilton songs, and now we're fully entrenched in Matilda. If anybody's familiar, don't know how many people are into musicals. I wasn't, but my kids are, and so now I am. Uh, For those who are unfamiliar, Matilda, the musical is an adaptation of the 1998 book by Roald Dahl, and I completely missed its stage run around 2011, but last year Netflix made it into a movie, It's a story of a little girl who is neglected and mistreated by her parents, the Wormwoods, and sent off to a terrible school ruled by a tyrant named Trunchbull. But in the opening song, Matilda responds to her fate singing, nobody else is going to put it right for me. Nobody but me is going to change my story. Sometimes you have to be a little bit naughty. My kids love that part. On the one hand, there's a little bit of truth there, right? There's hopelessness, helplessness, and victimization will not help a person. It will not help at all. Quite the opposite. But do you hear the tragedy in what Matilda sings? There's a tragedy here. The weight of her life seemingly rests on her ability to beg, borrow, steal, and deal. She has to become self-sufficient just to survive. The message is this, if I rely on no one, I'll never be hurt. I make myself, I am the captain. Hamilton is essentially the same story, a neglected child with superpowers, overcomes obstacles and perseveres, right? And he's not only tasked with the crushing burden of writing his own story, but the story of an entire country. I like Matilda much better. And not just because it does have a happy ending. It's because she doesn't end up writing her own story. She does not end up writing her own story. We'll, we'll talk about it more later, but let it suffice to say that Matilda needs someone else to change her story for her. She needs someone to change her story for her. The last servant song tells us a shocking story. The servant of God, the Messiah, saves you not only from the penalty due to you for your sin, but he also rewrites your history. He rewrites your story. He resolves in this chapter your story of guilt, my story of guilt, the guilt we carry for our sin before a holy God and so my hope today is that you would put down the pen that you've been using to write your own story that we're all tempted to do put down the pen and read the story not write your own story just read your story the story of the servant we read it in sorrowful silence And then once we've done that, we can stand and listen to our stories told to us, for us by the suffering servant. So I want to invite you to two responses as our souls cry out today in considering this text. And as you read this kind of text, it does make your soul cry out. This is a powerful text. Our souls cry out for something as we read it. And so I want to invite you to this. I want to invite you to sit in silence at this shocking story And then to stand satisfied in this salvation story. Let me say that again. Sit in silence at the shocking story and then stand satisfied in this salvation story. You are not an unwanted child trying to make it on your own. Forced to be a little bit naughty in order to get by. Forced to write like you're running out of time. You have a flock and a shepherd. Behold, the lamb who was slain in Isaiah 52 and 53. Let's pray, and then we'll read the focal point of the passage in verses 4 through 6. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this prophecy. Lord, the hope for so long of Israel looking forward to their consolation. Lord, it is shocking. Lord, it is jarring. But Lord, it is the news that we need. And so, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would convict, you would change, you would speak to our hearts by your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my sight, my heart be pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. And afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is God's Word. So we need to get our bearings a little bit before we jump into this text. When a text is particularly beautiful, meaningful, or memorable, it's that much easier for us to forget its place in Scripture, to forget its context and just appreciate it with a narrow focus. Remember that Isaiah wrote 39 chapters of darkness and bad news and then turns the corner in chapter 40 with, "'Behold, look, my servant.'" It's like he turns the lights on in chapter 40. The arrival of this servant, this Messiah, changes the tenor of the entire book. It's been said that chapter 40 is like the beginning of a sunrise after a dark, cold night. In that case, chapters 52 and 53 are the pinnacle beauty of that sunset. The storm clouds and impending darkness of another dark night coming soon make the shining all the more striking and must remind us that the sun will rise again. It's no accident that the first word of chapter 52 is awake. And the last word of chapter 54, sing. This is a bright spot in a lot of very hard, dark, bad news. This passage in itself surely is cause for lament, but not without first giving us a tangible hope. So you'll see that this passage begins with victory and it ends with victory. But the dip in the middle, the dip in the middle to seeming despair is what is so jarring for us. So first, we're going to sit in silence at the servant's shocking story. Sit in silence. Look with me at verses 14 and 15 in chapter 52. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told of them they see, that which they have not heard, they understand. Jump over to verse 7 in chapter 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silence. So he opened not his mouth. Everyone is shocked to silence by what is taking place. The servant himself and even the kings around him who are seeing what's happening. Shocked to speechlessness at his disfigurement and, yet, and his exaltation. How can those two things go together? How can he be so ugly and disfigured yet so high and exalted? How could these things go together? Now Isaiah frequently speaks about the arm of the Lord. Okay, that's one one of the ways he speaks of God's salvation, that God would bear his arm and that would mean that salvation is coming soon. That the arm of the Lord is able to save. Listen from Isaiah 51 and 52. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. y'all hear that? That's a theme through Isaiah. When salvation comes, it's going to be like God's arm is finally showing up, his strong arm. Now, God bears this arm of deliverance, and this is the means by which Israel can become the servant of God. This is their rescue. And so what we might be expecting is Sylvester Stallone, Stallone, can't say that word, in that terrible movie, Over the Top, it's an arm wrestling movie. Has anybody ever seen that one? I'm not recommending it. You've seen it? It's not a great movie. It's not a great movie, Scott. But it's a memorable movie. Sylvester Stallone, white tank tops, the big, the big, and he wins his matches by turning his hand over. He goes over the top, and then he wins in arm wrestling. That's what we're expecting, these big, strong arms, Right? Sylvester Stallone, but that's not what we get. What we get is actually gruesome. What is shocking is that something so weak and ugly could be used to change the story of history. Alex Smith was an NFL quarterback who retired in 2021, which is all the more remarkable because of what happened to him in 2018. Smith suffered a compound fracture and a spiraling fracture, And the gruesome injury led to infection and sepsis and 17 subsequent surgeries. He he narrowly avoided amputation of the leg, but he not only walked again, in 2020, he played again. He became the starter again. He led his team to the playoffs. And I remember watching a documentary about him. And when he pulls up his pants leg and shows his fully recovered leg, I was shocked. I could not believe that he could even walk on that thing, nevertheless even succeed at the highest level of professional sport. I was almost sick to my stomach at what I saw when they showed me his repaired leg. And this is not right after the injury. This is while he was playing. How could something so seemingly weak and ugly be used with such power and strength and even bring victory? This is what it's like to bear this kind of arm to Israel. This is the kind of arm that God chooses to bear to Israel. Recoil, horror, disgust, shock. It is so very like the one true God to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong, for his power to be made perfect in weakness. Y'all, when he shows us this weak, seemingly weak arm, he's showing us our own weakness. This is our weakness and our ugliness that he is taking on. As it's been said so beautifully before, he had to become like us so that we could become like him. Look with me at verse 2 in chapter 53. For he he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. The issue here is not whether or not he was good looking, it was the way he went about our salvation that was off putting. Y'all, salvation in the Christian life is not slick and impressive. It's just not. It's not impressive. We're told we won't even want this guy around, not to mention his message and his means. Instead of being a mighty tree, he's like a little weak sprout. One commentator says, we expect a costumed drum major to lead our triumphant parade. But I would add that it's like, instead of the triumphant drum major, we got the street sweeper. After the parade. And it's Bourbon Street, the day after Mardi Gras. We've made a mess, we've paraded ourselves around, and while we are still asleep, he is making our world livable again in silence as he stands in the middle of our filth. Do you picture it? That's the kind of person who is serving us. Look with me at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Sorrows here can be rendered pain and acquainted with grief as knowing our sickness. But one interesting thing here is that this word despised carries a lot of emotional weight for us in English. When we think about despising someone, it's like truly truly hating them and being recoiled back from them right but in hebrew it doesn't carry that same amount of emotional weight um it's more dismissive than aggressive like our street sweeper image right this is someone deemed unworthy of attention he's not even worth thinking about is what it means when it says he was despised ignorable indifferent true hatred which is indifference Y'all, to this day, for many, the name of Jesus is something to be dismissed, just not even considered. May it not be so with us. I want us to ask our hearts a tough question. How often do we passively ignore or even actively dismiss Jesus as we encounter the problems of our life and our world? where do we go to for solutions? Where do we go to for help? Or do we despise the name of Jesus, not by hating him, but just by by simply ignoring him? May the church never be the place where we've moved past the miraculous, past the work of the one who created it all. Look with me at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent so he opened not its mouth The silent sheep is a picture of the atoning sacrifice made by God's people once a year described in Leviticus 16 you remember the day of atonement I want you to think also of the innocent lamb whose blood covered the doorposts in the passover And here We sit in silence at the brutality of it all. Our silence is prompted, yes, by how ugly it is, but also why it was done. It was done for us. Here the sheep is simultaneously our shepherd. The blood of a sheep could never take away the sins of the world, but God himself in the flesh That kind of death would rend the heavens and change the fabric of reality itself. Here we see a shift from sitting in silence to standing satisfied. And so for the remainder of our time, I want to invite you to stand satisfied in your salvation story. Look with me at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The pattern of the language here is substitution. It goes back and forth. We see he, but we. He, but we. And it's comparing back and forth, back and forth. A guilty story exchanged for an innocent story. He became sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Substitution, friends, is the only way that justice can be achieved. Modern conceptions of guilt describe it as non-transferable, so that if I have guilt, I can't put my guilt on you. But in the Hebrew conception, it is stressed that God not only punishes wrongs, but that he puts wrongs right. And he does it by substitution. He takes the penalty. Notice here in ver- the sorrows and griefs that we hear in verse 3 become ours in verse 4. Like we said, they were ours all along. This repetition and reversal shows us that the sorrow and sickness that made us despise the servant was our own sorrow and sickness that we despise. Do you see it? We're despising in the servant what we put on him, what he took of us onto himself. Isn't it true that what often bothers us in others is so often what we hate about ourselves? We can't handle that we are that way, so we put it on others and then resent them for it. But Christ, the suffering servant, he's a willing scapegoat. He takes the sin of the people and is sent away, banished for us. Friends, he's not just an empathetic Savior, suffering with us, he is a substitutionary Savior. He suffers for us, in our place. Any suffering that we feel here on this side of the cross, this type of suffering does not compare with his suffering because it's suffering and absorbing the wrath of God due for sin. In a way, Christ is taking on hell itself in our place. And the idea of a suffering king would not have been unfamiliar to the nations around Israel. Um, In some of the nations around Israel, the king would be ceremonially humiliated before the evil deity of Marduk. And there were these spirits called Rapuima who were part of the myths around the god of death, Mot, and the god of fertility, Baal. These Rapuima, these saviors, healers, were thought to heal diseases, bring fertility, and guard against the evils of society. But here's the thing, they never took the sicknesses. They never took the pains. They never took the evil of the people on themselves. They were never wounded healers, they were detached wonder workers. Do you see the difference? Not wounded healers, but detached wonder workers. We can see here that the idea that there is a king to be humiliated, a healer to bind up our wounds is written on our hearts. The longing for this in all cultures clues us into the fact that we need it. We must have it. But natural revelation is not enough to show us the true wonder of a king who not only suffers, but does so for his people. Not only heals our wounds, but takes them himself. Y'all, the myths, they fall short. They fall woefully short. The prophecy, this history, pierces the deepest longings of our souls for absolution, for forgiveness, for peace with God. And the religiosity of our souls, whether in Papua New Guinea, Soviet Russia, or Ivy League lecture halls, The religiosity of our souls is betrayed despite our best efforts to say that we're okay. We know we're not okay. We know we need a mediator. We know we need a substitute. We know someone has to be accountable. But we will devour each other until we bow the knee to the man of sorrows. He actually has the capacity of righteousness to suffer in our place and absorb our wounds. And we will fight and claw for accountability because we know someone is to blame. But we don't have the courage to look in the mirror like the disciples and say, Is it I, Lord? Is it I? In the words of the great theologian Taylor Swift, Hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. Do we have the courage to look in the mirror and consider our own culpability in the evil of this world, or is it always them, 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 them? them? Blaming them, 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 them for the problems in our world just distances us from having to face the music of our own culpability in what is wrong with our world. I'm the reason for evil. I'm the reason for public unrighteousness that celebrates wickedness and condemns righteousness. Y'all, parents who have hopes of healing their relationships with their children are the ones who can look at their children and say, I messed up, I hurt you, and I'm sorry. Spouses who have hopes of healing their relationship are the ones who can look at each other and say, I messed up. I hurt you. I'm sorry. Churches who have hopes of healing are the ones who can look at each other and say, I hurt you. I'm sorry. The situations without much hope are the ones where we are entrenched, self-righteous, never backing down with a death grip on our innocence. I know because I've been there and I want something better for you. And our suffering servant paves the way for that kind of freedom, that kind of repentance, that kind of healing. Look with me at verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. You might ask, why all the different words for sin? We've got sin, transgression, iniquity. It's the same reason we have a rich vocabulary for love in Greek. We have a rich vocabulary for sin in Hebrew. All the words for sin have to do with our rebellion, right? Our turning away from God. But when we transgress, we cross the line or we incur a debt. Iniquity could be described as our twistedness, that our hearts are so bent so as to not work properly, So, justice in front of all these sins, all these transgressions, all these iniquities would mean that we pay the debt, that we're accountable for our actions, and yet the servant is crushed. Really, in the Hebrew, it's pulverized. This is brutal language. The question for me and for you is do we really see our sin this seriously? Do we really see our sin this seriously? When we cross the line, does it warrant this kind of punishment? Our 21st century ears want to say no, but the answer is yes. Friends, we cannot miss this. Christ did not suffer like this for our brokenness, He did not do this for our mistakes, He did not do this for our weakness. Sin is serious and it warrants this kind of just consequence. Isaiah wrote to an Israel that rewrote the moral code to pander to their own desires, who would not bow the knee all the way to Yahweh, but toyed around with false gods who offered wealth and comfort. One commentator put it this way, This is not a matter of a raging tyrant who demands violence on someone to satisfy his fury. It is a God who wants a whole relationship with his people, but is prevented from having it until justice is satisfied. In the servant, a a way was made to both gratify his love and satisfy his justice. Do you see it? It's the only way. It's the only way. By his wounds, we are healed. He still bears these wounds, even at the right hand of the Father, he bears the same scars of our healing in his glorified body, the same scars he invites Thomas to feel for himself in his doubt. He still bears the wounds of our sin. I just started reading The Hobbit with my oldest. Uh, if you're unfamiliar, J.R.R. R. Tolkien was a friend of C.S. Lewis who wrote a series of books, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. It's what if if you don't know about it. It's what you'd expect. There are dwarves, there are elves, there are dragons. It's also very stereotypical Presbyterian sermon illustration. So right. So here goes. At the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo says he may see his true home again, but it will not be the same. Why? He says this because I should not be the same. I am wounded with knife, sting, and tooth, and a long burden where shall I find rest? In response, Gandalf says this, there are some wounds that cannot be wholly cured. What Tolkien got right in this story, according to another author, is that this story is an anti-quest, not to obtain a magical artifact, but rather to get rid of one. It's an anti-pilgrimage, Rather than seeking a sacred site in hopes of transformation, Frodo trudges into hell and becomes home wounded, not healed. Do you see how it's flipped on its head? That's the journey that Christ is on, and that's the journey that we are on. This is how our stories are rewritten. It's been said that Christ here is not a victim, but a willing participant with a worth deeper than his degrading circumstances. And if God does not show wrath, sooner or later we will take justice into our own hands. Like we read in Proverbs 17 if God acquits the guilty, if he says to someone who's guilty, go free, then he is not good. Likewise, if he punishes someone who is innocent, he's not good either. But God can tell us to be angry and not sin because he can be angry and not sin. He is the only impartial judge. And so by pouring out his wrath on sin, he is good and just and perfect. Jump back with me to chapter 52, verse 13. It says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. We know now that Jesus rose, ascended, and was glorified. But notice how similar the verbs are here. Do you see it? exalted lifted up very high the very first verse of our text hints at victory through resurrection isn't that remarkable victory over evil could never be complete evil could never be conquered unless it was done this hideous way saint augustine called it an unthinkable perversion of order a scandalous corruption of goodness In God's wisdom, evil was defeated by being turned against itself in self-destruction. The death of the servant broke the power of death. It shook reality to its core. It turned justice on its head. It is the radical rewriting of the story of God that is our only hope for having a new story told for ourselves. You can't rewrite it. Hamilton was right. We don't get to decide who lives, who dies, who tells our story. But Matilda and her teacher, Miss Honey, who were both trapped and mistreated by the evil trunchbull, were right. Listen to how their self-reliance melts away while they sing at the end of the story. Listen to this. I was sure that I would never escape the story I had written for me. I couldn't find a way out. I couldn't see beyond the clouds that swirled around me. I believed I would never be able to rely on anybody else and I I was sure I would just have to learn how to survive all by myself. And one day I opened my eyes and looked up to find that the sky had turned blindingly blue and right by my side there was you quietly taking a stand, changing the end of my story for me. You were there as I battled my fears. I fell and you helped me to stand. When the storm finally cleared, you were there, changing the end of my story for me. Quietly, silent, like a lamb before his shearers, silent, changing our story on our behalf. Pastor Ray Ortland says this, maybe you know what it's like to feel like the bottom has fallen out of life. Maybe you feel shame from profound failure and loss. Maybe you know what it feels like to be damaged beyond repair. What if your record could be replaced? What if you are no longer defined by your past? The good news from Isaiah 52 and 53 is that you are no longer trapped in you. Your story has now been written into his story. Your scenes have been spliced into his film. You have a new future now. And Redeemer, if the Father accepts Jesus' death as the resolution of your guilty story, the question is, do you? God accepts it. He accepts that as the final story for your guilt, for your shame. Do you? So put down the pen. You can and must retell your story. This is different. Track with me here. We must retell our story. We need to insert truth in place of lies, responsibility in place of helplessness, repentance in place of rebellion, love in the place of neglect and hurt. But there's an enormous difference between retelling your story and rewriting your story. We cannot bear the weight of that responsibility and people are crushing themselves while trying to identify themselves, create themselves, write their own stories. Put down the pen. Let your story be told by the one who was crushed for you. Listen to what he says about you, who he says you are, and how it cost him everything for your story to have a happy ending. It's a quiet, shocking story but it's the story of your salvation. Though sorrows tarry for the night, joy comes in the morning. After we sit in silent sadness of the story of Jesus, we can stand even now in the satisfaction of our Father in heaven. Sin and death and guilt wrote your story until the cross. But until, but God's children have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. The suffering servant secures for you a hope and a future. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, sometimes there aren't words to respond. Sometimes we must sit in silence and hear what you're saying. Thank you for this beautiful text, and I pray, Lord, that we would spend the rest of our lives reading it, understanding it, plumbing the depths of it, I do pray, Lord, that you would be rewriting histories, that those saints and sinners and sufferers in this room would come to the suffering servant, and that he would do his work of healing. Thank you for giving us one another to be a part in that, but Lord, it has to be your work. It has to be by your word. We love you, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.